Ron DeSantis. If Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows that because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically are like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when we start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids, we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars in debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or thirty thousand dollars they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the compounded interest. And now here are your hackers of the week: Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snap Hook Podcast. Tim Costello, Scott Barzilla, coming to you Friday morning. A little bit off our usual schedule, but uh, hey, we're fighting through and we're making sure we're, we're putting out fresh content for you guys. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not going to say unfortunately, I'm going to say uh, for good reasons, this is going to be our last show for a little while. Um, I know that um, one of the reasons is that, um, you know, my family will be going on vacation uh, with my parents and my sister and brother-in-law. And I know, you know, Tim is expecting a new member of the family you know, very soon. And so, you know, for those reasons, uh, it'll it'll be, you know, a little while before we're back on. So we wanted to make sure we got this show in the books. Yeah, you know, it's uh, a, a, an anxious time over here in the Costello household, but uh, exciting time as well. So probably have at least one week off, uh, if not maybe two in between now and our, our next set of episodes. But um, you know, excited to be here tonight and, you know, kind of, a, a back to our roots a little bit, Scott, is, um, you know, when we initially started the show, it was, it was, you know, finding the crossovers between sports and politics. And, um, you know, I think tonight's a great opportunity with, with our topic to, to kind of get back to our roots and, and have one show that, uh, is kind of all encompassing where we can talk about some of the political, uh, and sports things that actually come together uh, in our topic tonight. Right. So I think where I'm coming from, and I think Tim is, is going to be having his own angle on tonight in terms of the, the tie-in between sports and, and politics. And my tie-in is a term that I would like to call magical thinking. And so I think we're um, I'm going to try to tie this in. I know later on we're going to talk about our Houston Astros a little bit because they're approaching the halfway point in the 2023 season. Um, but to start us off, I just want to tell a story about something that happened this morning. Um, you know, my wife woke up and she wakes up before we do because she goes into work every day. And uh, Ann and I do not, obviously. I'm off for the summer. And so... 
you know, when I was waking up and kind of getting around, I heard what sounded like, you know, those popper things that kids are play, you know, play with sometimes that kind of make those little firecrackers sound, but you know, they're not firecrackers. I don't know if you ever used to play with those, Tim. Um, the ones that you like throw on the ground and pop? Yeah, exactly. Oh, those are fantastic. I love throwing those at people's feet. So I heard that, you know, it sounded like that. I was like, oh man, some kids is playing with, with poppers. Well, that changed when all of a sudden one of the uh, fire department suburbans races into our cul-de-sac and pulls onto what we would might call the common ground where you have trees and benches and whatnot. And so I walk outside and I notice that not our immediate next door neighbors, but you know, another family on the cul-de-sac, their garage is engulfed in flames. And so here's, you know, the first fire trucks there. So I immediately go in the house and I get my daughter up and I said, you need to get outside. It says, she's like, why? Cause neighbor's house is on fire. Get out there. And, you know, surely, you know, two fire trucks come in. They immediately get at least the fire isolated to the garage. And luckily I, I don't know. I haven't walked the whole, you know, the entire their entire house. They had one of those detached garages uh, on their home. And so pretty much the, the garage is gone. The car's gone. It's there, but I mean, it's not easily not drivable. It's, it's, uh, I mean, they've, they've totaled it and that's, you know, if they have collision on their, you know, on their car insurance, I don't know. And what's sad to say is that we really hadn't met them yet because they, you know, they'd moved in, you know, maybe about a year ago. We just hadn't got around to meeting them yet. But I, I guess kind of the point is, is that this is real life. These are things that happen. So something sparked in the garage. They thought it was their car. I don't see how that's possible without starting the car. Uh, maybe Tim knows something I don't, you know, that I can kind of, you know, figure that out. But I don't think so. I think it was something probably electrical in the wall of the garage that probably sparked for whatever reason. And, you know, one thing led to another. These things happen every day. And I have to applaud. It was the uh, the Houston Fire Department officially. They got out there quick. They, you know, they met business. They, you know, sit there, closed everything off. They took care of everything. They had three dogs. They had hamsters in the house. All of them safe immediately fantastic job so what does this have to do with anything that we're talking about well for me what this has to do with is that government is day-to-day -day stuff now does government prevent fires from occurring of course not i you know live two doors down you know and i wasn't smart enough to prevent it because i didn't wasn't smart enough to go i thought geez what's that crackling sound oh yeah those are flames but city services were able to take care of things and to make sure to prevent a larger disaster. And those are something that we do expect from our government. And what we're seeing far too often is we're seeing far too many people in government at the state level, at the local level, at the national level, they just have absolutely zero interest in governing. None. They don't have any ability to do it. They don't care. And the thing is, is that there are so many things that can affect our lives that we have talked about on this podcast. You know, obviously, this is a fire situation. That's one thing.
but you know we've talked about it tennis brought it up that you know if somebody were to get a cancer diagnosis unless they do a gofundme they might be declaring bankruptcy you might have you know we have situations where we have people who are you know victims of hate crimes so we have people who are victims of gun violence all these things are happening and there are many people in our government and many people in our society who have no interest in solving or attempting to solve any of those issues. And so I want to talk a little bit about one of the reasons why that's happening tonight. Yeah, I think it's, it's really sad, Scott, because there was a time where I don't think it was even that long ago, right? Where the people who were on city council for the most part were like people who really cared about, their community and they wanted to make it better. And, you know, obviously you still had ideologies as you ran for office, but you still were, were trying to get things done. And our political ecosystem is, is so just blown up at this point that it's all just theater. You know, like I, I, I feel more and more that like our, our political world is, is basically turned into WWE wrestling and outcomes predetermined, go out there and act it up and, you know, make it look good for everybody on the floor tonight. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to go home with exactly what we know is going to happen. And it's gotten to the point where you've got to show your performance on a different level first, right? You got to do something so outrageous and say something so awful or so asinine to a certain base and get a social media following going just to be a city council person, knowing that you're going to eventually make you a crazy Congress person. And, and to me, that's, that's kind of where the state of our politics is, is, you know, people who legitimately want to help and, 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 and work in local government are either turned off by the climate or they're, they're just outshined or outspoken because the people saying assholeless things are getting all this media coverage for being assholes. But at the end of the day, they're still getting the media coverage and they're getting votes and they're moving their way up the political food chain. And it's a scary, scary progression that we're seeing right now from local politics into more of the national level um, when it comes to some of these uh, right leaning and, and MAGA people so the idea original idea i had for this show was i wanted to talk a little bit about cults and the reason it got me into that was you know i um, i'd asked him earlier if he had ever watched something called the david pacman show uh so david pacman is one of these guys has a youtube channel and he's sending out reporters to these trump rallies and is basically asking these people, what do they believe? And then basically with follow-up questions. And so here is the example he gave. And, and the best you know, demonstration I'll walk through. Uh, and I'll walk through this with him. So you know, uh, I'm just going to start off with this and say, let's say I'm walking into Tim's house. And I just go like, oh my God, there's a tiger in here. Now, Tim... What's your opening response? Uh, I'm probably going to freak out if you tell me there's a tiger in here. Well, you look around your, your room that you're in right now. Do you see a okay. tiger? Do you see no. a tiger? 
So you're gonna. So what's your your? I'm just, now I'm gonna think like you're on fucking drugs or you're having like a stroke or something along that nature. No, but like, I was, a, like a Billy Madison, like come here, Mister Penguin, <laughs> like that's <laughs> okay. So here's but I'm walking through this. You know, th- this is what David Pakman did on this show, which I thought was fascinating. So was, and so I find the person who's talking about the tiger. They say, no, 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 it's an invisible tiger. So now, what's your next question? Or your next statement? I, I, I gotta like say like bullshit. I don't know. Like, well, and so this is where David Pakman's walking through it, and he'd be like, "Okay, well, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put some baking powder on the floor, and so wherever the tiger goes, they'll disturb you know the powder, and then we'll see. They'll prove it's a tiger. So that's when the person says, "No, no, no, no." The tiger's weightless. Doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't disturb anything. He said, okay. Then he went like, okay, I'll leave some food on the floor because the tiger has to eat eventually, right? So if we notice that the food is gone, then, you know, that'll prove that the tiger's there. Well, no, 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 this tiger doesn't eat. Now, I don't know if Tim has caught on to, you know, how exactly I'm, I'm yeah, This sounds on. like bullshit. Well, but basically... If you want to transport people into the same Trumpian world, this is basically what happens, is that every time you sit there and point out, well, no, no, actually this is impossible because basically your statement becomes proof of the conspiracy, right? Well, there's no evidence. Well, of course there's no evidence because that's part of the conspiracy. They took away the evidence. That's when you just start throwing up your arms and you're just like, shit. So, the 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 major cult that when I was growing up, and this actually happened when I was a senior in high school. Uh, did y'all have Channel One at Clear Lake High School? I don't think so. No. Okay, so that was an experiment that they ended up doing with us. Is that we were the first senior class, and in fact that was the first year when we were seniors is that they would do channel one during, I guess what people would call homeroom. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, homeroom is something we don't even do anymore because it's, you know, it's kind of, I mean, I remember they had like an announcement channel and like they had like kids in the, who were like taking broadcast journalism would be at a, a desk and read off like the school news on some school wide channel. So, you know, Channel One was a group of people who were like young journalists who were trying to appeal to the high school age. And the only one that I remember vividly was Lisa Ling. I don't know if you if that name is you know, crossed any bells. She ended up, you know, being a, a journalist of some renown. But my senior year was the Branch Davidians. And I don't know if you are familiar with the Branch Davidians at all. Very, very familiar. So that happened during my senior year in high school. This is 1993. And so we were watching basically this siege between the ATF and the Branch Davidians occurring in real time. And so this, you know, it it lasted over a month. And so you had David Koresh and uh, David Koresh. Actually, you know, what was ironic is that he wrote a song earlier in his life, and the title of the song, There Was a Wild Man in Waco. 
And well, as we we come to find out, David Koresh convinced a group of people that he was Jesus Christ. And they released some of the children uh, to the ATF. But basically anybody that was adult in the compound was dead at the very end. And, and, and brutally. They were essentially burned alive and the building fell. And it was a very, very dark mark on the ATF that actually affected how they handled a lot of things going forward for the next five to ten years. Yeah, and, there, and of course, I, I've watched uh, some documentaries on this, uh, particularly on investigative discovery uh, since then. And, you know, there's still some conjecture, still some question over who fired first and, you know, what exactly happened. There's some people that think the ATF were the aggressors or some people that think that the Branch Davidians were the aggressors. But kind of the point is, is that if you look back on famous cults in history, it basically around uh, revolves around the same things. You have a charismatic leader who is able to convince followers, usually a man. I don't know if it's universally a man that's, that's in charge of these things, but I would say, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, it's a man. Um, everybody I think remembers Jonestown. Everybody remembers, uh, Charlie Manson. Um, there's obviously, you know, been some other famous examples of cults. And then there are some p- things that people... Texas A&M. <laughs> yeah. There are some other things that people call cults. And I don't know. I mean, in a serious question, would you consider the Church of Scientology a cult? Yes. It's interesting. I would too. Uh, but then there are some people that would say it's not a cult because they're not locking you into a compound quite literally, but this is where, but they take all your money. Like when, when, when there's like a mandated portion of your money going to the cult or the, you know, the religion, I think it gets that point of cult because a lot of cults realistically start at, there's some sort of religious element to a majority of cults. You know, they're, they're either, you know, extremely like Christian, like to where like you had with David Crest where you say like, I'm Jesus or you had like the holy rollers, or you've had you know some sort of spiritual enlightenment is 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 with the cult, right? Or else, why else would people be following in this person's footsteps? It's most likely religious based, and until we get to where we're at today. Yeah, and and I think, and this is kind of what's interesting is that there are some people that have argued that the Catholic Church is a cult, for instance. Uh, there's a number of people that have ar- argued that uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, more commonly known as Mormons, but I think uh, the Mormons are cults. I, I um, would, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. Like, if you literally look at like the history of how Mormons came to be, like, I, it's it's hard not to call bullshit on Joseph Smith. Like, I, I mean, realistically, like, if you just look at like, here's what he said happened, and like he just got like. It's hard to say bullshit. And then if you look at some of the conspiracy that happened with the Mormon church where you had like a guy faking Mormon artifacts and it was basically like one bull. It's like the Spider-Man meme where two bullshitters are pointing at each other because the Mormon church knows all artifacts are faked. So they keep verifying this guy's fake artifacts and keep buying them from the guy until eventually it all comes out and then they try to have him killed. And so like, yeah, to me, the Mormon church is, is, uh, it's a cult. 
Well, and what's hard as a devout Catholic myself, what's hard to get to is whenever you sit there and you look at these cults and everything, everything that is based on the cults, when you're on the outside looking in, you're going like, how in the world? Because I'm sure you've seen the South Park episode of the Church of Scientology where they sit there and said, this is what Scientologists actually believe. Yes, it's insanity. And they did the same thing with the Mormons. And Catholics. I mean, they've, they've held no punches. Right. No, and, and But the whole thing is like how you can sit there, or me, myself, as a devout Catholic, and go like, you know, this stuff that y'all believe is pretty out there, and there's nothing to substantiate it. And it's absolutely crazy. And somebody could turn that flashlight around on me and could sit there and go, well, bud. I mean, let's let's list out, you know, your facts that you believe in. So, I mean, I get it on that level. But the thing is with magical thinking is, is that magical thinking is immune to facts. It's immune to reason. It's immune to anything analytical that you would could sit there and go like, well, no, actually, that can't be true. Which is what's frustrating is when we get to the uh, we get to the Trumpism, and when you when you sit there and you uh, have these people like my the best example is uh, the people who believe that Trump is actually currently in power. They believe he is the president of the United States, and that you know everything with Joe Biden is fake. So the interviewer will actually just turn around and says, "Well, so then is all of the inflation his fault?" Trump's fault? Well, no, 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 that's Biden. No, but you said that Trump was in charge, and if he's in charge, isn't he responsible for all the crap that happened in Afghanistan? Isn't he responsible for inflation if he's currently in charge? Well, no, no, no. And so it's like, there's a breakdown of logic here somewhere, isn't there? No, there, there absolutely is, right? And it's there's no there is no logic. It's not even a breakdown of logic. There's absolutely no logic with with that portion of of today's political parties. And it's I, I don't even it, cult is kind of the right word for it. I mean, the the MAGA Republicans really are a cult at this point. They they have no legit ideology other than like I support this man lockstep no matter what, like there's nothing he could do wrong. But the, like what makes it weird is like Trump's never come out and said like, I'm Jesus, right? Like that's not, we're not at that level. He has not taken it to a religious level, but it, it is essentially like a religious following at this point. It really is the way that, you know, like there's like, like you said, there's a lot of people who come at you for Catholicism and say like, come on, do you really believe this guy died? And then like three days later, he fucking walked out like, yo, bitches, holes in the hand. What's up? Like, and we just go, yeah, like that's what we believed. And and, and with Trump, it's, it's, he's literally just like, hey, I, I did all these great things. And people just go, yeah, fuck yeah, I did. Yeah. They can't tell me anything else. Like, cause, cause he said it. And, and it's just. You know, it's well. There's proof, right? Like we can't prove one way or the other whether Jesus was was born and and all, you know risen from the dead and all that. Like we have the Bible, it's a collection of stories. That's kind of what we go off of. But like we've got fucking proof of all of Trump's misgivings. We've got him dead to rights on like so many things, 
And immediately, as soon as he says, like, I'm under attack, you know, the, the Biden administration's coming for me, everybody's just like, yep, everything's fake, and that's what it is. And and it's it's just so unbelievably culty. And it's but at the same time, it's it's kind of some of the antithesis of some of the big things of a cult. Well, my favorite part of the Trumpism, and I know, and I know you've seen this online, are the people who release the memes of Trump in soldier gear, and then would put out next to us, "Look at all he's sacrificing for us." Mr. Bone Spurs himself. You're like, what in the hell are you talking about? You know, Dion, I mean, it's just because when he sits there and says, and, and this is the crazy thing to me, is when he sits there and says, I am your voice. And you're like, do you really honestly believe that he cares what you care about? Do you really, I mean, like the coal miners, he's going to, he really, you know, it's like, do you, do you think he's done an honest day's work in his entire life? Do you think, and, and that's what, and the whole, you know, and and of course you get the whole two-tier justice system. It's like, yeah, two-tier justice system. Here we have a guy that if he were any other guy would have been in jail 30 years ago. For any number of things. For any number of things. And it's the craziest thing. But yet, oh, no, we still believe him. He's still a great guy. And it's like, okay. You know, whatever you say. And now what's disgusting and crazy is that same group of people have, like, locked onto anything associated with the Trump name. And, and my main example with this one to, to kind of bring us into the sports world as well is, is Live Golf. Because Live positioned itself to play at like a couple different Trump-owned properties in its first year, they all of a sudden got the fucking MAGA people to, to cult for Live. The amount of people who just die hard for Live Golf on Twitter and you can tell them no wrong. And it, it's the same people. And, and it's just because... They used two of his courses. Oh, this is the Trump approved league. Trump liked Trump showed up at this league. Fuck the PJ tour. I'm in for live. And it's boom, same mindset. And it's, 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 it's bad for the game of golf, but it's, it's scary to see how quickly this man can just give a sign of approval on, on something. And all of a sudden that many people are just like ready to fight you over it, ready to, you know, lockstep and, and barrel. Let's go lives the one. And I'll, I'll, and I'll go down swinging. And it's it's really scary, Scott, that, that we live in a world where if Donald Trump gives you the, the old signature of approval, that like all of a sudden you've got, you know, more than a million people ready to, to just follow in behind him. Well, and the crazy thing and the most scary thing is that if you look at the history of cults, and, I, and I'm just going back with the major, I'm, I'm just going back with the last 50 so years, right? Because, you know, there's been all kinds of cults throughout history that we could do a deep dive on. But you look at Jonestown, you look at Waco, you know, the Branch Davidians. Um, the Rajneeshis. You're looking at, so what do all of these cults have in common? Some sort of mass death at the end? That'd be correct. And so is this what was going to, is this what's going to happen? 
you know, and if there's a mass death, then some of us will be collateral damage if that's really what we're looking at. Because if you're looking at a cult of this size, because you're talking like, and I don't think every Trump voter is a member of the cult. Um, I think there are people who honestly looked at it and they're like, I'll never vote for a Democrat ever in my entire life. And I don't like Trump, but I'm going to vote for, you know, vote for Trump because I hate Democrats. Correct. I think that's stupid. But, you know, you do what you do. You do what you want to do. So maybe 10 million people. 20 million people are hardcore Trump. Maybe that's a lot of freaking people. That's more. I mean, that's on a factor of a hundred over, you know, anything that we're talking about, you know, anything like the branch Davidians. I mean, we're there. You're talking in hundreds of people. You're talking about Jonestown. You're maybe talking like, you know, thousands of people were probably part of that thing at the beginning. And some of them at the end are bailing because, you know, they, they had an inkling of what's happening and some of them were lucky enough to get out. But if you're talking on a factor of tens of millions, if there's a mass death event, what does that look like? I can tell you, I, I think I know exactly what it looks like, Scott, and maybe I'm being an alarmist here, but I, I think, you know, in my opinion, some of the, the closest um, parallels to, you know, the hardcore MAGA Trump Republicans is, is almost, in my opinion, like Islamic fundamentalists, you know, some of the, the ISIS or the, um, uh, who, the Afghanistan, um, the Taliban, right? Essentially, instead of Christianity, you know, Muslim or Islam. But what were the most hardcore people willing to do, you know, in the name of Allah is, is was, you know, I hate to say this, but, you know, strap a bomb and, and walk in somewhere or take planes and fly them into the World Trade Center. Like to me, I, I truly think like terrorism is, is what it looks like, you know, like in a world where Trump doesn't get his way. He doesn't, you know, win the election. He says it's a fake, you know, and he tells people like, you know, fucking grab a grenade, walk into this building and, and do it in the name of, in my name, martyrdom in my name. Like, I think that's what that mass death looks like, Scott. I really do. Like, maybe I'm being an alarmist. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it the wrong way, but, but based on, you know, history and, and other parallel situations to me, that's what it looks like. Well, and I, I think we haven't seen suicide bombers because that's not the American way. The American way, and be quite honest, is guns. Yeah, a big fucking gun. I'm going to walk in and I'm going to do suicide by cop. And I'm going to take as many people out as I can, you know, in the meantime. And we've already, you know, we've already seen it tied to, to some of that rhetoric, right? And I think, you know, either he, uh, again, I don't think he's a very bright individual. So I think he's probably getting coached on this, but he's getting coached to say things with enough plausible deniability where he's not coming right out and say, uh, George, take your gun out to the Walmart, kill a bunch of folks. He's not going to do that. He's going to be a little bit, a little bit, you know. No, he goes, you know, the people at Walmart, you know, a lot of them aren't supposed to be there. You know, some of those people that are there are going to go out and rape and murder people. But, you know, I can't really do anything. You know, Border Control won't do anything. But those people there are shopping at Walmart, you know, 
I wish someone would do something about it, but no one can. No one can do anything. But again, those people are there. They're at the Walmart on this street, and they're typically there about nine thirty a.m. But again, I can't. I can't do anything. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. And so, I don't know what the solution is, because you you watched it, and and, and I invite you, and those of y'all who. Uh, You've seen it on uh, you've seen it on the Daily Show if you've watched that with Jordan Klepper, where Jordan Klepper will go out and interview people at these these MAGA rallies, and and this guy, you know, David Pakman, not himself, but he sent people out, these young kids out, and, and they've and the thing is, is that they're asking excellent questions because they're asking the follow up questions that you know any normal person would ask whenever somebody says something that's you know not tethered to reality is you're going to ask a basic follow-up question of okay well what about this and nothing you know nothing gets through or it's just no you're you're, you know you're flat out wrong i'm right so you're not going to convince these people of anything so and and i think the biggest mistake that We'll just call it the left in general. And we can throw under this umbrella. We can throw whatever you want to. But the left in general, the biggest mistake they've made is that they've gone out and they've sat there and said, this is a horrible guy. No shit. I mean, anybody anybody that's paid any attention to Donald Trump, and and I've been paying attention since the 80s, Obviously, Tim hasn't been paying attention that long because he wasn't alive literally in the 1980s. But um, you've been paying attention since probably at least the early aughts. You know what he was before he entered politics. We all know what he was. I mean, I got to be honest with you, Scott. I, I voted for Trump in 2016. Like that, between 2016 and 2018 is where I started my my move left. Like I, I grew up in Clear Lake. I, my family growing up was, you know, they will vote. My mom and dad to this day will vote Republican no matter who's on that ticket. They will straight take a Republican vote. And that's how I grew up. And so when I really started paying attention to Trump was 2016. Cause I, I kind of fell into that trap of people who maybe thought he was a good business person who knew him from the apprentice and, you know, didn't really look into him all that much until some things just didn't seem right. Twenty sixteen to twenty eighteen, you know, like some of the deals we were doing with Russia, some of the other stuff that was going on. I'm like, this guy is not who he said he was going to be. And then that's really when I started my move left. So I think that, and I think that people who are in the Republicans. I think could be split into two categories. I think there are people who. We're just never going to vote for Hillary Clinton or any Democrat. That's where I was. I was a Bernie guy who couldn't vote for Bernie and voted for. Or, or, or you know, for any Democrat for that matter. And, you know, and I sympathize with those people on a certain level because I'm pretty much that way in that in a national election, I've never voted for a Republican. I have at the state level, but I've never done it at the national level. Never. Um, but then again, I, I grew up in a democratic family. So, I mean, that's just the way things were. I think there are, I think that's where most of the people more Trump's voters are or were, where they were just like, 
Yeah, let's see what happens. But to see, the thing is, is that if you paid attention to Trump since the 80s, you knew what he was. You knew. And so for anybody to sit there and go, oh, no, he's this great guy. He's a Christian. Really? You know, so, you know, my favorite part is when he's, you know, being interviewed. Um, and I can't even remember it. I, I, I've watched it over again since 2016, where the two guys, they, they worked for MSNBC, kind of. And they ended up having their own podcast, but they're asking them about the Bible. Hey, can you pick out your favorite Bible, Bible verse? No, no, I really don't want to talk about that. The Bible's a great book. I, I, but I, it, it's personal. I don't want to talk about any specific verses. Well, do you, um, are you an Old Testament guy or New Testament guy? I, I, I like both. I like both equal. And it's like, it was like that Sarah Palin. And I don't know if you were paying attention back in, in, in 2000, uh, 2008 when Palin was running. And I do. I remember her well, actually. Where they asked her to name any Supreme Court case, any Supreme Court case other than Roe v. Wade, any Supreme Court case that she could name. No, they can't. Or I know what news sources, all of them. Really, you pay attention to all of them. You can't name one damn news source that you pay attention to. I mean, and, and everybody saw through it back then, but then there are people falling, oh, this guy's such a great Christian. This is before he held a Bible upside down, you know, getting his secret service to act like thugs and clear out a park, you know, with, with all kinds of tear gas and all that kinds of shit. This is before then, even before then, when you're watching it, well, I, I don't, I can't name any Bible verses. I don't want to name any Bible verses. Well, I don't even know what the difference is between the old and the new Testament. And it's like, really? Anybody thinks this guy's a Christian? Really? What the hell? And it's like, you know, at least if some, you know, some people who are honest who sit there and say like, you know, he's not a good guy, but Hillary's not good either. And, you know, maybe he's a businessman and maybe he's an outsider and maybe he could get some things done. Yeah. That I'll buy. But this whole, oh, he's a good man. Look at all the sacrifices he's making for you. Really? Come on. It's it's a great narrative he's weaved, Scott. It really is, and it's it's tough. It's it's absolutely and it's to get that on the sports side of things, right? Because I think every you can make an argument that every diehard fan of a team is is almost like a member of a cult, right? I, I think that that's not a hard argument to me. And like, look at us with Astros with the Astros. Like you and I love this team. There's really not much they could say or do. That would make me stop liking the Astros, right? It's not going to go away. We we literally got busted in a cheating scandal, and I'm still fucking here, right? Like I'm not going anywhere, uh, and I'll and I'll go and I'll go down swinging, saying like, you know, defending us in that scandal. So it, it's interesting to see it turned up to the next level, right? Because I think in in sports, for some reason, it's healthy, right? Like it's healthy to have this passion and to an extent. To, to have something outside of yourself that you, you know, can kind of have some control of your emotions and your decision-making and things like that, just to sit back and watch it. But to have these same things now leak into your, I mean, imagine we're at the point, like imagine if like every decision that you made for the rest of your life was based on like what Jim Crane said, 
Like, hey, uh, I can't buy this car. Jim Crane said, uh, no go. The Astros are, you know, Chevy. I got to go Chevy because that's what the Astros do. You know, sorry. Eh. You know, hey, got to get my, you know, got to get my taxes done by the official uh, tax provider of the Houston Astros. You know, hey, sorry about that. Got to get my house clean. Janet King, official cleaner of the app. Like, that's. That's to me. That's like the absurdity of it, right? Like, there's a, there's a, a line where like you can be a fan and it's healthy, but then there, there gets to that point of like it's disgusting. And on the sports side of things, like yeah, we laugh, like haha, that's stupid, but like literally, that's that's where we're at. Like the moment Donald Trump says like, hey, this guy's cool, everybody goes and votes for him. The moment he says like this company sucks, you use this company, people go and use it, and it's 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 just so strange when you look at it through that that sports parallel of like you know what if we literally just did everything jose altuve said i i think we'd be a better place i, I think america would be a better place if if everyone just did what altuve said but like it's still why do we feel this one guy is is our voice well it's think, n- well think about it this way from the sports angle because i think you hit on something because i was talking about this you know on you know juanita jeans and, you know, I made the sports analogy, but think about it like, so we know that the Astros have been to, basically, if you want to take out 2020, I mean, they were in 2019, 2021, 2022, basically three World Series in a row and lost two of them. Now, the way some fans work is some fans will sit there and go like, okay, we lost. Who do we look around to blame? Where can we get better? What can this team do to, you know, to make sure we win next time? You have those fans. And I think that's the, those are the fans. That's where, you know, Tim and I land. And then you got uh, Dodgers fans who say, someone else cheated us. We deserve that World Series. We're the real right, World Series champions. Right. Which, and you see the fans like this in every sport and you see them and it's like, we really didn't lose. The referees cheated us or the umpires cheated us or the other team cheated. And so you have those. And, and then of course you have like, you know, I'm going to say Oakland Raider fan. I know they're in Las Vegas, but stereotypical Oakland Raider fan was dressing up in all kinds of garbs. And, and if you were, you know, rooting for the other team in Oakland Coliseum, you, you might not walk out of that, that place. I mean, you might you might have gotten stabbed or you know shanked or. You know, What's like sitting here looking at it? How fucking ridiculous is that? Exactly. Like honestly, like the Dodgers Giants stuff that happens when when people get in fight. Like, what the fuck are you doing? You're going to watch a baseball game. You're basically the same person, right? Like you're so diehard. It's the only difference is colors. You like blue. You like orange. What the f- like it is. Did you, Asinine. Like, did you ever watch? I don't know if you ever saw a movie, uh, The Fan. Oh God, yeah, that's the that's one with Robert De Niro and Wesley Snipes. Yes. That, that's a fucking crazy baseball movie. It is, but you know, to see how over the but there are. I mean, I don't know that there are any fans that would you know that would basically shank a guy to death in, in a sauna, you know, so his guy could have a number. Uh, I mean, that's a little over the top, but. You got fans that think like that, and that's magical thinking. So, like in the sports world, where you see magical thinking is like, I'm gonna keep, you know, like if I'm if I'm gonna skip ahead to the Astros because we're kind of blending this episode in. So, 
what is the justification for playing Martin Maldonado? He's a he's a coach on the field. He's you know according to the pitching staff prepared his game plan yada yada yada. So, Pitchers pitch better to him essentially is the, is what Dusty Baker would tell you. So I did something interesting, right? I'm not going to go with any fancy alphabet soup. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to go with OPS or you know on base. I'm not okay. So let's boil down Dusty Baker's argument. I looked it up since 2021. I looked up the numbers because 2020, you know, that season to me doesn't really count. Martin Maldonado wasn't an Astro really. I mean, I think he was brief time, but he really wasn't in 2019 for that long. So I started in 2021 and I started using, okay, I'm going to use the dusty argument. I'm going to say like, well, we're just a better team with Martin Maldonado on the field. Well, how would you measure better if you're not going to use any statistics whatsoever? Tim? Uh, I mean, with no statistics, I, I think you have to just go win-loss record, right? Like you have to go, how many games did we win with Maldi versus another catcher? That's what I would do too. So here's the funny thing that I discovered. Uh, in 2021, sure enough, the Astros were better with Martin Maldonado than they were with Jason Castro. And I just went flat out, who started the game? If you go... See, but that's, you know, that's, such but if, a fuck, that's such a skewed statistic because typically Jason Castro was catching like a guy who's our fourth or fifth starter and Maldonado's catching all the aces. But here's the funny thing that happened, Right. So, and I uh, went to 2022, Jason Castro and Christian Vasquez combined had a better winning percentage than Martin Maldonado in games they started. And I don't know if you remember, but Jason Castro was an absolutely God, God awful hitter in 2022. I mean, yeah, he, fact, he was rough. The fact that he his last game he hit his only home run of the season, and then basically deuces I'm out, right? So, he I mean their combined numbers. I think their combined OPS I looked it up was 500, 500 combined OPS. That's probably still better than Maldonado's was. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. But they still had a better winning percentage. Why? Because Christian Vasquez is a better defensive catcher than Martin Maldonado. He just is. I don't know. Also, I think Vasquez caught Javier last year exclusively, too. I don't know if he's a better hitter. I mean, he's not that much better anymore. I mean, because he's got no power anymore. But this year, it's not as extreme as you would think because Yanir Diaz is. Uh, actually played a lot of games at DH. But their record when he's catching is better than Maldonado's record when he's catching. Now, again, I'm not looking at any offensive numbers. I'm not looking at any defensive numbers. I'm just looking at pure wins and losses. So, again, I'm going to repeat my question. Why is Martin Maldonado in the lineup again? 
because Dusty wants him there. Because your leader expects us to just believe he makes us better. That, ladies and gentlemen, is magical thinking. When I can sit there and say that we're better when this guy, even though there is no empirical evidence to suggest it, we're better when this guy plays. Okay. I, if you have nothing, you can't prove it. Okay. And so, you know, this is kind of, and, and, and I'm going to get to my sports scumbag, because I think I'll, I'll have a couple of different sports bag, uh, scumbags later. Uh, one sports scumbag and one political scumbag. But I just, I don't, you know, I don't understand it. I, I just, that's magical thinking to me. There's no empirical evidence to suggest why you would do that. None. And in fact, it's realistically, it's more of a ignoring of the science or ignoring of the math, right? Like it's literally to spit in the face of what is actually true. We're going to wipe that aside and say, no, believe me, this is what it is. So I don't, you know, and the scene that kind of reminds me of is I don't, uh, did you watch the, the, Moneyball the movie. I have. So do you remember when Peter Brand is actually working for the Indians? At the beginning, yeah. So where he whispers to a scout and the scout whispers to the general manager and the general manager just goes, no, we're not going to do that. And, you know, Billy Bean asks him, what did you tell that guy? Oh, I just said I like him. Because he can't. He couldn't come out and say, I like him because of this. He had to just act like it was a hunch. Like a hunch he's due. Kind of like, a, you know, uh, Lou Brown at the end of Major League. I know he hadn't done too good against this guy, and I got a hunch he's due. And you're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Do whatever you want. But the whole thing is, I mean, and the, but that's what it is, is that you cannot, and, and we've gotten to this point with the Astros where we've done this complete 360, where, you know, it used to be the days when Ed Wade was here and, and, and you couldn't breathe any kind of, the, you know, anything that sounded analytical, you couldn't do. We've almost done like a complete 360 where we've gotten back to that point where, you know, you can't mention any statistic as justification for anything, because then, then you're just a nerd and you don't know anything. It's like, okay. Definitely been an overcorrection, you know, and getting away from the Lunau era, the Lunau way, you know, it's just the complete opposite. And bringing in a guy like Dusty Baker, who's such a feel guy. And, you know, I, I think the results speak for themselves. I mean, both, both methods theoretically worked exactly the same, right? Like, at the end of the day, Dusty got to a World Series – Two years in a row, won one, lost one. Uh, A.J. Hinch got to two World Series, won one, lost one. So, you know, it, it, you can't necessarily sit there and say one works better than the other when they both work. But it, it's tough right now when not only is Diaz, you know, getting more wins. Like, he's a much better hitter. He had a fucking bomb last night. Or yesterday, daytime, part of the day game. But... I mean, Diaz is, is is the future catcher of the Astros. And, you know, it shows you something when when Dusty's continually trying to find ways to get him in the lineup for his bat 
Fuck, let him catch. Let's get rid of the dark hole that is Martin Maldonado. Let Diaz catch, and then you can get an extra bat out there. Now Jolks can Jolks can DH, and and now you can have Myers and Chaz in the outfield together. I mean, it's just it is it is a crazy thought process that Dusty has sometimes out there, man. It is, and I think and and I've actually heard Luna speak. Um, I remember I went to like a baseball prospectus event. Um, out there when he was, you know, just starting off. And this was like right after, you know, the Correa draft. So, you know, the Astros weren't even good yet. This is how early on this was. And one of the way, things he explained, he says, what he does with his scouts, or did, I guess, is he would allow them to put like a star next to one prospect that they had, that they had scouted who they couldn't explain, but they loved this kid. And they made it a priority to draft as many of those guys as they could. You know, when you're talking about your area scouts. And I think that's a good melding of it, you know? And I think, you know, because I, I think there is, you know, sometimes there is a sense that you you get that you, you need just think a guy. Like if you read Moneyball, they didn't really go into it in the movie, but um, in the they went over... The fact that Billy Bean loved Nick Swisher, just absolutely loved him. And he loved him not because of anything statistical, because, but, you know, what his attitude was. And if you looked at his draft, Nick Swisher was the only guy that did anything at the big league level, you know, from that, you know, famous uh, Moneyball draft. And so there is something to be said for a feel. And there is something to, like when you look at Yanni Diaz, if you dive into the numbers, He's chasing 50% of the pitches outside the zone. Now, you tell me what's going to happen eventually. That number's going to go down. Or he's going to strike out more, one of the two. Right. But see, here's where I think there is some knowledge, and you can write a guy while he's hot. Like, and, and, and he, you know, he reminds me of the other DS that we had the last several years, Lesmus DS. Lesmus Diaz would get on absolute tears for like two yeah. or three weeks at a time where you're like, damn, why isn't this guy playing every day? And then it would be like watching Serrano in major league in spring training. You start throwing him curveballs. Oh, that's why he's not playing every day. I think less, uh, I think Yiner Diaz is kind of a similar guy and I think it's going to catch up with him. but you know, damn it. Let's keep him in the lineup until things start catching up with him. And I think, too, though, realistically, Scott, that chase rate would come down if you played every day. I think part of that is being a young player who doesn't get as many at-bats and you're pressing and you want to make a you know make an impact on a big club. And so, you know, you've got pop and you're going to chase a little more often. If you played every day, I have to think that your, you know, your, your eye would be a little bit better at the plate. And, maybe, and that's one of those things that's unexplainable. But I do think that if you get this guy caught, you know, five out of seven games – the chase rate would probably be closer to 35%. And I think that's actually uh, bears out with the, with the truth of what you're seeing from a couple of other young Astros. I think uh, particularly Jolks has been drawing yeah. a few more walks lately. Not a ton, but, but better. Know, the but more better. plate appearances he's getting the you know, and his defense is getting better too. Yeah. A fantastic diving play yesterday. Pena is drawing more walks this year than he's on pace, pace to draw more walks this year than he did last year. And so uh, when you look at, and, and, and 
as we you know discuss the Astros in more length here, because it is practically the halfway point. I think the problem with Dusty Baker, and this is you know where I ran into today, is that life is not a choose your own adventure book. I think you know Tim, we talked about choose your own adventure books. You know when we were growing up, and there was always that. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if you could go back to that page and sit there and say, what happens if I did this? What would happen? Well, you can't do that with Dusty Baker. And so you can't prove that Dusty Baker is the reason that we went to the World Series two years in a row the last two years or was done in spite of them. They have no way of knowing. You know, even no way of knowing like, hey, let's say we hired Buck Showalter back in 2020. What happens to this team? Or what happens to this team if we hire this other new manager? Or what happens if after 2021 you said, like, you know, we've gotten through this scandal, Dusty. You've done great. We're going to let Joe Spada give it a shot. You know, thank you for, you know, thank you for that. We, we don't know what would have happened. But I think when you look at what this team has happened, I mean, number one, it, it's just in kind of an unprecedented level of different things that have gone on. Number one, You've lost four starters off of last year's six-man rotation. Uh, we know that Ellen, uh, that McCullers is out for the year, may not even start next year on time. We know that you know Garcia you know, has had Tommy John, so he definitely is out for this year and part of next year. Uh, we know Urquidy on the shelf. We know Verlander. Went bye bye. Now we look at Verlander's numbers in New York, and we're going like, "Thank God we didn't pay that guy forty plus million dollars a year." But that's still four starters off of your last year's team, and all you did was add Hunter Brown. Now, what I like about the Astros is that we have a higher hit rate on pitchers than I think is natural or normal. I mean, there's no reason why J.P. France should just come up and go like, oh, I'm good. You're like, where in the hell did this come from? Yeah, I feel like every starter not named Brandon Belak that comes up has some pretty immediate success, you know, at the major leagues. Belak is the one guy that continually comes up and, and disappoints for the most part. But J.P. France has been fantastic, as well as every other young starting pitcher the Astros have brought up this year. Except Brandon Belak. Well, you know, what got me with Brandon Belak, and I saw this last year, and this is where I, you know, I kind of harp on Dusty. And this is where I think with pitchers, um, I, I think there is ERA, then, there, then there's a DERA, Dusty earned run average, where I think there were games where Belak bailed you out of jams because he was coming in in long relief a lot, and there was a couple of outings where he pitched three, four scoreless innings. You're like, man, that's awesome. Pull him. Now nah, I'm going to keep him in there. No, he, he's done it. Go ahead, pull him. He's gotten you out of this jam. Let's go ahead, pull him. And Dusty would leave him in, and he'd give up two or three runs, and you're like looking at the outing as a, as a whole, and you're like, man, that doesn't look too good. And it's like, well, if it reminds you that he was actually at zero runs after three innings or four innings, then maybe, you know, that, you know, three or four runs that he gives up in the last inning doesn't look so bad. But I think Belak has been miscast. He's not a starting pitcher. 
Belak is your old-fashioned mop-up guy. You're up by 10 runs. You're down by 10 runs. You need somebody to eat innings that, you know, will save the rest of your pitching staff. That's Brandon Belak. That's really, and, and that's the role that Seth Martinez seems to be playing right now. And he seems to be the designated extra innings pitcher for whatever reason. I'm not sure. Uh, this team is now 0-6 in the, in the next ratings. Honest uh, question for you. Right now, you had an eight-run lead in the eighth inning. You need two innings out of a pitcher. Do you taking Rafael Montero or Seth Martinez? Oh, I'm taking Seth Martinez. Okay. Uh, any, uh, yeah, I don't think Montero can hold it. Hold no, that eight-run lead right now. Well, you look at Mon- you look at Martinez's numbers, and he's got a lot of unearned runs because of that stupid ghost runner rule. Yeah, and so I mean, his ERA is actually in the threes. So I mean, it, I, I'm not I'm not going to give him any high leverage situations. But damn, Montero, my God, he's pitching batting practice. And you know, now his ERA is over seven, but again, that kind of goes back to you know the whole Dusty situation of we're paying this guy $12 million or $13 million. I can't even remember how much it is exactly a year. But you got to stop pitching him in the eighth inning. You, you just have to. I honestly think at this point – you have to put him on like the 60 day IL and just be like, well, something's got to be wrong and we'll, you know, go work it out. We'll, we'll get back Whip, to you next year. Whiplash. Something. I mean, well, you know, yeah. you know what causes that whiplash? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think at this point, like you can't afford to DFA him yet. You really can't. So you, and you don't want, and he doesn't have the options to go back down to the minors, put him on the IL Get somebody else up here and know that, hey, maybe next year you can work through whatever fuck's going on right now, but you cannot be on my major league roster right now. Well, and with a normal manager, and that's why, you know, with Baker, I, I keep hearing people talk about this, and I keep hearing people suggest, like, trade Maldonado or cut Maldonado. It's like, do you realize what you're suggesting? Because it's one thing to pull an Oakland A's and sit there and say, oh, I'm going to trade Jeremy Giambi and I'm going to trade Carlos Pena so you can't play them. Okay, Carlos Pena was a rookie and Jeremy Giambi, everybody hated. They all love Martin Maldonado. They absolutely love him. And, you know, they'll sit there and talk about how he's got, like, three laptops on his lap on the, on the team plane and he's looking at... You know, this hitter, this hitter, this hitter, different situations. You know, I have no problem with Martin Maldonado. I have no problem with Martin Maldonado being on a 26-man roster. What I have a problem with is Martin Maldonado playing 80% of the time. Correct. Because if he's that good of a teammate, Scott, he would still do all that shit, then hand the research to Yiner Diaz to get ready for his starts. Absolutely. And you know what I would do the minute this season's over, I would sit there and say, we want you as a coach. That's, you know, and and maybe a roving instructor in the minor leagues. Maybe he's a minor league manager. I don't know. Uh, Maybe he's a bench coach for Joe Espada. If, you know, we can finally get, you know, Dusty Baker to retire. 
The problem you have is that when you have a manager like Dusty Baker, Dusty Baker's the problem because you have all these people will do this with Montero, do this with Maldonado, do this with this guy. It's like, no, let's just bring a guy in here who's not an idiot. Why don't we do that? Give that a shot. Because to me, Montero, you could do stuff with. He could easily be a guy that you throw into a game whenever your starter's given up five or six runs in the first three innings, and you're like, crap, we got to pull this guy. Who do we put in there? Well, put in Montero. Let him work an inning or two then. Because do you, okay, the the best example I can remember, do you remember um, Brad Lidge post Pujols? Yeah, like they just kept trying to find ways to well, get, let him get outs and get get back in it. Well, first he started as the closer again the next right. year. Then they had to move him out of that spot. That it was, I mean, it's a sense of what's going on exactly right now with Montero. Every single time they try to get a hey, seventh inning, we're up four runs. Go ahead and get in there, Lidge. Well, here's a three-run homer. Yeah, we're still we still have the lead, but Lidge gave up another three-run bomb. But we know what eventually happened, though, is that he eventually started pitching well. If you look at his Astros numbers, but if you look at Baseball Reference, look at the last season before he went to the Phillies and actually had a perfect season as a closer. Um, he was actually putting up some really good numbers in that last season as an Astro. I think. I think you can get there. Well, I'll look it up too. But I think you can get there with Montero. But I think the key is is that you got to stick him back, and he's got to put back. He can't just put two good outings together because he's done that. So what you have to do is he has to go like five or six good outings in a row. So his last season as an Astro, um, he had three, – three, Three three six, which isn't terrible. It's not terrible. No, I mean the year before he had a two a five two eight. Yeah, and then two two nine. So really, you know, and then he he has still has thirty four games finished, even though he has nineteen saves. Uh, but then the next year is when he has the unbelievable season in Philadelphia, and they win the World Series because he had you know one ninety five ERA and he was forty one for forty one in save hit chances in that two thousand eight season. So the whole thing is you can get it back, but what you can't do is you can't sit there and say, you've had two outings, good outings in a row. Okay, you're our eighth inning guy again. No, you have to build him up. He has to be your fourth or fifth inning guy. Oh, looks like he's had five or six outings in a row. Let's move him up to the fifth or sixth inning. You don't jump from the fifth to the eighth inning. You keep tethering him up just a little bit until all of a sudden like he's had like maybe two or three solid months now you start talking about you know giving him some high leverage situations again but the the problem that they've had is that Montero he'll, he'll pull Montero out of the eighth inning he'll have like two scoreless outings and then boom we're right back in the eighth inning. No. To me, Brian Abreu is your eighth inning guy right now. Either that or Hector Neris. Both of those guys are great guys. You've got Maton. You just have to flip Maton and and, and basically Montero. Maton cannot be your, I'm going to pitch him 
eight days a week until his arm falls off, which it seems to what's happening right now. Um, I would not be the least a bit surprised if Maton, you know, comes away next year with an arm injury and is out for the year. Because right now, Dusty is just absolutely just running him into the ground. Yeah, Dusty does that. Like, Dusty just has that one guy every year who this is my get-out-of-trouble guy. And it's – it's. are you saying it Maton? I thought it was Maton. Uh, maybe it is Mayton. It's yeah, I yeah, you throw me I'm like, am I pronouncing this wrong? But no, I, it's it's it's, it's Mayton. Um I forget that you don't have the broadcast, so you don't probably hear them say the name as much. No, I don't. I don't. But yeah, that one's but yeah, no, he's it, he's using Mayton a lot and he's been fantastic. But yeah, Brian Bray's filthy. And and going back to our signing of Montero, I always thought Montero was gone after the postseason and I felt okay with it because we had Brian Abreu and I felt like he had he had turned a corner. Uh, and he's definitely showed that. And it's, we're lucky we have that wealth of, of arms to be able to kind of ha- survive this Montero implosion. But, um, yeah, he's he's unusable at this point. And you could have. And the thing is, is what you could have done. And, and I think Stanek is also struggling. And Stanek is always kind of like flying a little too close to the sun. Yeah, where, he, where he very he, much has that issue. Where, where he's an like, Icarus. He is an Icarus-type pitcher. Where it's like, you know – how do you can afford to walk two guys an inning? It's like, well, because you really can't and survive for very long. So, you know, that- yeah, he walked, a, he walked a tightrope last year and he walked it well. And uh, yeah, he's not walking it as well this year for sure. But he was just arbitration eligible. So he's basically on a one-year contract. So what was the very worst that would have happened with Stanek? Like if Stanek turned into Montero, you got him. You you eat a couple of million dollars, and that's it, right? Montero, they should have gone the same route with because I don't see the market for Montero. I don't. I mean, maybe some team throws money at him. Someone like the Marlins or something might have come in to be like, "You're going to be our closer next year." I think that might have been. But, oh, well, fuck it. Let him go. You have a plethora of young – that was – looking back on it, I think Montero was the bigger mistake over Abreu. You know, again, we can – you can go back and forth on it all day. You know, Abreu versus Yuli or whatever. But, Clay, I mean, Crane coming in and and paying big money without a GM for a fucking – just a regular reliever, not even your closer. Come on. We've discussed before relievers are, are very rarely – you know, consistently good every year. There are some of those guys, and they're closers for the most part. But the middle, but the seven, eight, nine guys who are good every year are rare. They're rare. Okay, okay. so here's where, I, where, I, where I'm going to go. Um, to make this more fun, we're going to take Alvarez off the table because I think he's he's kind of a pretty obvious pick. So through the first half of the season. Who is your team MVP? Fromber. I think I, I think I, I can't disagree with that pick. And Frommer is the reason why I have actually been saying this for a few years now, but I think I'm completely on board with this. I have a new change for the wins rule. Very simple. Very simple change. The official scorer gets to choose the winning pitcher. Period. That's my change. 
because that that night um, we go in. Was it uh, he gives was it eight shutout innings or eight innings with one run, and Presley comes in, gives up three runs, and gets the win an extra inning or the win in the bottom of the ninth, and you're like, come on, you know what are we doing? And to me, that's and I noticed this because I looked at it and. And I, I was breaking this down. If you look at the Astros pitchers, even if you look at like their record, when they pitch, Christian Javier's record is just vastly superior when he pitches. But the reason is, is because they're averaging over six runs a game when he pitches. There is not a single starter on the team up when I did this that had any more than none of them even had four runs a game. Yeah, it's and the floor this the floor for Fromber, in my opinion, is like five runs five innings, three runs. Like that's not a good but that's like the minimum you can expect from Fromber. And then obviously, you know, his ceiling is, you know, eight innings of shutout ball. So to me, Fromber's been that guy that anytime you need to stop something, Fromber will stop it. And his consistency I mean, I, I think almost every player offensively, for the most part, has somewhat underwhelmed this season. I, I, I think, you know, a lot of people had high expectations for Kyle Tucker with the shift taken away and, you know, some of the changes that have been made. A lot of people, myself included, thought Tucker would put up an MVP-type season. And, and so far, you know, that hasn't been the case. He's been good, but he hasn't been, like, MVP great. And so, you know, Bregman's underperformed. Altuve was hurt. Pena is starting to heat up, but I wouldn't say he's been the team MVP. I mean, to me, really, the, the only – again, if you're taking Alvarez out, the only legitimate answer to me is is Fromber Valdez. I would, I, I would actually agree with that. I think if I were going to go with, you know, position players, um, I would have to go Tucker, even though I think I agree with everything you just said about Tucker. But he is the only guy in the lineup that has been consistently at least decent for the whole season. And he has, I will say, in the clutch moments, Tucker has been pretty good this season. He's come up with a lot of extra innings, late innings hits that, you know, maybe the average isn't as good as possible. But I think if you isolated that, you know, clutch moment, which is defined like seventh inning or later, um, he is hitting well in those opportunities. Yeah, and, and so I think, yeah, I have to agree with you on Fromber. And, and I think the decision – I saw a stat today, which was kind of neat. Um, probably Nolan wouldn't think so, but Nolan Ryan had 192 quality starts in his career where he did not get the decision – or did not get a win. And in those games, he was combined 0 and 112 with a 225 ERA. I think that's Framber Valdez this year. Um, he's got seven wins, but I think if 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 there were anything, if it was really if there was a you know uh, justice, he would have at least ten or eleven wins. I think there's a perfect previous Astros parallel for for Framber along with Nolan, but um, Roger Clements. Uh, when he came to Houston, just would get no run support yeah. when he would start. Yeah, and, you know he that that first year especially he had like an ERA below two. Yeah, and like ten or twelve wins. You know. Yeah, and 
I think that's kind of where Fromber is. You know, he he may not always get the stat in his favor, but you know, I, I think we're lucky that we live in this advanced statistics world for pitchers because you know, like Degrom has won a Cy Young with with you know a losing record before because the Mets sucked, but his stuff didn't suck, and so because of those analytics, he was able to be recognized. So I think for Fromber's sake. You know, he's lucky to, to be playing in the time period that he is, so he can still get his accolades. But, yeah, I mean, the Astros, though, in my opinion, in my life, the Astros are synonymous with never giving their best pitcher run support. Like, go look at what Verlander got. Go look at, you know, what um, what Shane Reynolds used to get back in the day. Um, Wade Miller, when he was our ace, we never gave him any run. Like, it's just in the history of Astros baseball, we don't ever hit for our ace. Yeah, I think with the Astros, and I think uh, historically, and this is what's killed me, is like they're basically like a shopping cart that has a bad wheel that just pulls to the left or pulls to the right no matter which direction it's facing. Because every GM, since at least the turn of the century, has a, we need more pitching. And it's like, do you realize that your pitching has outranked your offense every fucking year almost of the century? Every damn year. I mean, except for 2017, when I don't know what happened. What happened in 2017? We won a World Series. Oh yeah, that's right. So, um, but uh, nothing happened. Nothing major happened, Scott. Don't worry. Okay. About okay. It. Oh, that was the hurricane. Okay, that, that, that's what. Yeah, yeah. Hur- we had a hurricane. That's what yeah. it was. Yeah. Okay. So, who is your most disappointing player? Uh, that's tough. Um, just and only because there's a, a couple. I think Bregman's on that list, although he's starting to heat up a little bit. But I still think I kind of expected big things from Bregman this year. Um, and I think Lance McCullers is is for separate reasons, right? But like knowing we needed him. With suffering the losses we suffered in the offseason, losing Verlander, you know, McCullers had came back last year, pitched in the postseason, did some good things. And to not have him, I think that's been a huge disappointment. The thing with Bregman is I, I'm actually not on there with Bregman. Uh, the thing is, I, and I think I realized this last year, and I kind of resigned myself, that 2019 was never going to happen again. I don't know why 2019 occurred. Um, You know, some people seem to think that maybe cheating was involved. I don't know. know, That's also when the ball was at its most volatile state in Major League Baseball was 2019, where they were really messing with the ball. Yeah, that's true. And and so it really, and at the end of the day, it doesn't really particularly matter because Cody Bellinger was also ungodly in 2019, wins the MVP award that year. And what's he done since then? I mean, he had done crap. There was, there was a great article that I read about guys who had kind of changed their swing to be a more on an incline, like a Bellinger or Bregman as well, that when the ball change happened in 2020, 2021, they really, really suffered because the balls that they were getting out are now just warning track flyouts. Well, and if you look at his numbers in 2017 – if you look at his numbers last year, if you look at his numbers in 2021, they're all within a fairly, you know, 
even range. And so what, what do we know about Bregman? So we know Bregman, uh, I don't think he, he's ever really hit for high, high average, but he's a high on base guy because he walks a lot and he doesn't strike out a lot. And so if you look like your typical, if you have two times as many strikeouts as walks, you're doing pretty good. He's almost one for one. And in fact, in some of those seasons, he would more walks than strikeouts. And I think he's still there. So right now, I think he's got, what, nine or ten home runs. So he continues on this pace. He'll hit between 20 and 25 home runs. He'll have an, an OPS between 750 and 800, which will be better than the league average. And he'll be a plus defender at third base. So the question that you have is that his contract is up after 2024. So the big question with Bregman is how much is Alex Bregman worth? That's really the big question is that right now he's being paid 20 plus million dollars because you know the balloon payment on that contract is now due so is he is he that level i don't think so um would he take between 15 and 20 million i don't know maybe um i, I don't know what it, where his mind is at right now uh for me the most uh, disappointing guy uh, i think is the elephant in the room is jose abreu I mean, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I I still think he's heating up at least. I think so, and I think what's kind of funny is when you look at his runs driven in, he's driven in more runs than you think because, you know, he's still a professional hitter, and so one of the things that's kind of frustrated me, and I think this is a baseball wide issue because I don't think the Astros are worse than anybody else, but the inability to get runners home from third base with one or fewer outs drives me nuts. Like when we lost that game in extra innings and Corey Jolks literally comes up and does the only thing that he could have done that would have ended the inning without a run scoring. And that's grounded to a double play. You know, there used to be, you know, the ability to, you know, to give yourself up and have a sacrifice fly. I mean, that, that used to be, you know, something that people were able to do. And I think it's kind of gone away like the idea of bunting has gone away because I think, you know, uh, people have discovered, you know, the Earl Weaver method where, where he used to sit there and say, if you play for one run, that's usually all you'll get. And so Earl Weaver was the first guy to figure out, I'm not sacrifice bunting. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing any of this crap. I'm waiting around for the three-run home run, and we're going to win games because we have good starting pitching. Well, I think that's the Astros method that they've won with. And unfortunately, that just means sometimes when you need that one run, you can't manufacture it. Yeah, you're, I mean, the Astros are terrible at manufacturing runs. Absolutely awful on, on that scenario. But I think that's um, a baseball wide thing too, though. You're not wrong. It's, it's definitely as, as the power numbers increased, it was, it wasn't worth it to risk a stolen base or it wasn't worth it to, you know, and, and, you know, I've read Astro ball. I got it right here, you know, but one of the, one of the main factors in that book is, is Sig Meg, Sig Megdal talks about is, 
You get 27 outs in a game offensively to play with. Why would you want to give one of them away? It's an interesting theory, and I think that relates more to the sack bunt than it does the sack fly. Um, sack the, the sack fly is just poor situational hitting. You know, for, for an example, like after my freshman year of college, I, um, my dad and I went to a batting cage, and I was stroking it. And I, for some reason, decided I'm going to try and walk on the college baseball team. Played absolutely no high school baseball. Played golf for four years. But after one batting cage session, I felt like I got this. So I trained all summer. I hired, I literally hired two kids that were on Click High School team to train me and, and fielding as well as hitting. And I think I got pretty fucking good. Like I really did. But then it's it's time for tryouts and it's time to hit. And it's not just see ball, hit ball. He's like, hey, this one I want you to hit hard on the right side of the ground. This one, you know, you got to run on third base. I want you to hit into the air to right field. This one, I want you to, you know, put this one on the hard on the ground to the left side. And I couldn't do that. I've ne- I had no ability whatsoever to be told this ball needs to be on the ground to the right side ahead of the pitch and just take whatever he gave me and did that. And, and that's what separated. And my point is, I was I obviously I didn't make the team, Scott. You know, I don't, I don't you know, didn't make college high school baseball team, didn't make the college baseball team. But I, I, I realize that's the difference between a guy like Moo, who's not bad. I mean, I, I wasn't terrible, but I wasn't a college athlete because these guys could do those things. Well, now we're at a whole nother level, and, and the Astros just haven't prioritized those hitting abilities. You know, they have guys who have pop. They have guys who, like Jose Altuve, can hit the ball anywhere, but also he swings at fucking everything. So, like, you just don't have that guy – besides Michael Brantley, who's not in the lineup right now, that you can tell him before the at-bat, hit the ball hard on the ground to the right side, and no matter where the pitch is, he can do it. Yeah. Um, I stopped playing baseball in fifth grade because I literally I couldn't hit the ball anywhere. Um, I was really fast. I played a really mean center field. Uh, threw a guy out at home. Once, you know, from center field, that was nice. Uh, drew a lot of walks, stole a lot of bases, but if you asked me to put the bat on the ball, that, that wasn't happening. So, uh, so with the Astros, and I think as of right now, you're or you're listening to this, they're on an off day. So, you know, they just beat the Mets two out of three, beating Verlander in the process. Um, before we get to our scumbags, we should mention as we record this tonight, uh, the Rockets. I think they've made a couple of different selections. I'm gonna look up their yeah the number so the number twenty pick. Let's skip ahead to that one. Amen Thompson was the fourth pick. We kind of all knew that was happening, but that number twenty pick, Scott, uh, is is it's something that's could be pretty exciting. This was a guy, um, and and the name of the the player that they took is. Cam Whitmore. This is a guy a lot of people has a top ten pick, and and based on some some pre draft interview concerns and things like that, he he fell all the way to twenty. So um, a lot of Rockets fans calling this a big coup uh, in the draft tonight. Yeah, I mean uh, I've heard some things about them. Obviously, you were uh, you were. Really- I'm disappointed. I'm a little disappointed with with Marcus Sasser on the board, knowing we needed a point guard and three point shooting that. They didn't get him, but again, if, if you felt like this guy was a top 10 grade, 
and he's there sitting at number 20, um, hey, what can, what can you do? You know, the board fell your way, and, and you can't you can't run away from that. And that's really pretty – and that's kind of the same similar story, not of him falling, but I think of how they got Sangoon, uh, where he was a guy that fell to them. They traded up to get him, um, who probably should have been picked higher than what he was. But, you know, the Rockets pounced on that. And I think – but that's kind of where uh, Raphael Stone has been, is that he's he's been transactional. And basically, you know, what that means – and, and, and um, the, the biggest guy I could compare to him in baseball is uh, Jerry DePoto up in Seattle because he's been in two different spots and he was basically the same when he was with the Angels. Is I don't think – Jerry DePoto really does a whole lot of long range planning. I think what he does is he sits there and says, this is a transaction that makes sense for us to do right now. So we're going to win this trade right now, whether that trade fits into the future, whether it makes sense in the long term, we're not really sure, but it seems to make sense in the moment. And that's where Raphael Stone is. Because, you know, this guy, you know, he did have some stories that came up. So is he going to, is putting him on this young roster the best you could do for him? We'll see. I don't know. Maybe it'll work out. I hope so. Um, but the thing is, is that we're still, and unfortunately we don't know where free agency is going to go. And the Rockets are in an interesting situation because of their cap space that they have, uh, that they have, they have to spend 50 million of it. I don't know if you knew that because there's a salary floor in the NBA, which baseball had that, but, um, unfortunately they don't. And, they have to spend $50 million of it. So if James Harden says no, where are you going with that $50 million? I, I think it's a sign and trade or something along that nature, right? I, I think it's – or you make a trade with someone, a, a player who's unhappy, but you've seen a couple of those moves have already been made, and the Rockets weren't involved in those, you know, with Bradley – with Beal um, being moved already, and then Kristaps uh, Porzingis – was was traded today, so I, I think I think you'll see a trade. God, I think the, the name that I keep hearing is Dylan Brooks, Scott, and I and I really hope that's not that's not where we go. But this isn't like a huge free agent class. Like, there's not a lot. You know, you got Chris Middlebrook, uh, Chris Middleton from from the Bucks. You know, he's a good three point shooter. But like, are you gonna throw a bag at that guy? Like, I don't know. This is a this is not a great. You know, like. This happened to the Rockets years ago, and they ended up signing Ryan Anderson to a big, like, four years, $80 million, because they had, they needed a $20 million a year player, and they used Ryan Anderson for a year, and they packaged that salary in another deal, and they and they bring in somebody else. We could see something like that, where, like, they they overpay somebody, knowing it's just a one-year deal, but they got to they gotta spend that money somehow. This is how we ended up with Trevor Reza the first time, where we relied on him to be a big-time scorer. My, you know, my favorite part uh, I, I quote frequently from Major League is when they're sitting there in spring training and you see Jake Taylor comes up and you sit there and go, 
Hey guys, yeah, he was an all-star in Boston, wasn't he? Before he had problems with his knees, wound up in the Mexican leagues. Wish we would have had him two years ago. We, we did. did. Well, oh, it was five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and some of those guys, like Ryan Anderson, like there was like two or three years before we got him. You're sitting there thinking, man, I'd love to have a guy like this. Then we got him, and it's like, yeah, okay, uh, maybe not so much. I mean, he played no fucking defense. He was such a liability on the court. And then, like, he shot so well on the road for us, but he could not shoot at home. And a lot of people had theorized, like, he was colorblind. It had something to do with, like, the the red of the Rockets. Like, it was, I mean, the fan theories are out of control with that one. But, Scott, uh, I had an incident today. Before we get to our scumbags, um, I had an incident today at League, and, and I kind of want to know, am I the asshole here? So it's second to last hole. We're leaving the green. I notice um, a wedge has been left on the green. And I'm pretty sure it's the guys that we're playing with. So I put it in the back of the cart. I wedge it between our two golf bags. And I take off. And then, like, I start hearing, like, a grinding sound from behind me. And I stop. And I notice that the wedge has fallen over and has been now grinding on the ground. For like oh, 200 feet. Oh, no. So now this wedge is destroyed. Oh, and my car no. partner looks at me, and he's like, we can't give this to them. We can't bring it to them at this point. Oh, like, no. So he's like, just throw it on the ground. Just throw it out right here. So we toss it. Just right <laughs> right next to the car path. And I'm like, should we should we bring it back? Like, should we bring it back next to the green and leave it there? He's like, no, I want no, I want no part of this. You destroyed this guy's fucking wedge. Like, we need to just act like we have no idea what happened. So we play the last hole, and then the guy, you know, everybody coming by, the guy's like, hey, did you guys find a wedge in that hole? And they're like, no. And and then like someone found the wedge and turned it back in. So we're like completely out of the woods, you know, the guy has no idea that what we did, but uh, you know, in my mind, I was trying to do the right thing. And it just so happened that his wedge tipped over and got scraped. But you know, am I the asshole here? Like, yes, we definitely just <laughs> threw this guy's wedge to the side, but I, like, I mean, to be fair, the wedge was like a shitty old Dunlop wedge. It needed a new grip and the new grip would have cost more than the entire wedge was worth. So, like, I didn't feel that bad about destroying it, and I was willing to still bring it to the guy um, and be like, hey, you know, I found your wedge. But the moment it got scraped, my, my partner was like, no, we got to ditch this thing. We got to ditch it now. <laughs> you know what you are? Uh, you're Joe Necro with the Emory board. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, if they were driving behind you, and you, all of a sudden you just see this arm just kind of toss this wedge? and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got away with it. We got away with it because we stopped to take a piss. So like they got a, they got ahead of us, and that's when I noticed the wedge and I grabbed it. And again, my big mistake was not putting it in my bag, but I put it between our bags so I would remember as soon as yeah, I get I get it. I uh... and it just tilted forward, and and my partner's like, dude, it's got chunks missing out of it. We gotta ditch it. Like I want no part of this. This guy's gonna be pissed. You destroyed his wedge. So like, I guess my question is, Scott, would you be more pissed that you lost the wedge or would you be like more pissed that you got your wedge back that you lost with, with, with a giant chunk missing out of it? 
Or I think I'd go door number three, where I'd just come home and said, honey, look what happened to my wedge. I need to buy a new one. <laughs> so I guess, though, am, am I the asshole? Like, was that an asshole move on our I, I definitely was, but, like, it wasn't my idea to ditch it. That was Roger. I don't know. I, that's that's a hard one. That, that maybe uh, maybe you need to write it to a, a advice columnist that actually knows anything about golf. Yeah. I don't know. That's that's just, never happened to me, man. Like I I honestly, when he said ditch it, I was like, I guess. I mean, it made sense in the moment. It like we gotta like fucking diss the evidence. Like let yeah. it go. Yeah, you, I mean, you've. So is it absolutely unplayable? No, but like it was, it was fucked. Like it was. <laughs> Because I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. That's just Scott. I, it dra- it it was on the concrete, dragging behind the cart for a good two hundred feet. Oh like, man, that's rough. Like it took me a minute to recognize that that noise that I'm hearing is a golf club dragging on the concrete. Well, so you're reminding me of this morning where the noise I was hearing was a fire happening in the house, practically. Yeah, next just door to bring it all, bring it all full circle. Yeah, we both heard some weird sounds today. Uh, and in both situations, other people's property got yeah, destroyed. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. Uh, so I think we, we're, we'll, we'll try to do a couple of scumbags each, but you know, we, we'll, we can keep it with uh, ambiguous between the political and sports world. So I'm going to let Tim fire first here with his first scumbag. I'm going to first go sports. Um, Last week was our national championship in the world of golf. It is the biggest tournament that the United States Golf Association puts on. And the site that they chose was the LA Country Club. And, you know, Scott, you and I talked a good amount last week about how much we were looking forward to the course and um, how much of a different test it was going to be. And, and what happens the, the first day out, you got two guys go out and break the record for the lowest all-time score. And all of a sudden, everybody realized this course is not what we thought it was going to be. But what we also realized is the vibe of the golf course was totally off. Something just wasn't there. The excitement wasn't there. And as the week went on, we realized this was not like any U.S. Open we'd ever seen before. This is one where it is corporate as fuck. They had 13,000 total tickets I'm sorry, 23,000 total tickets sold every day, nine of which were for general admission. Of those nine, LA Country Club and its members bought 5,000 to limit the amount of people that got on grounds. So you're looking at 4,000 legitimate on-grounds fans at our national championship? What are we doing? And the fact is, this country club is scheduled to host another one of these events in 15 years, and I want to know why. Everything about this U.S. Open was off. You know, the guys are teeing off at 5.30 here local time. Like, do you know how weird it is to watch a golfer finish up his round at 9 o'clock at night and it's live? Like, it just doesn't feel right. I'm all for primetime golf, but they've taken it to an extreme. They love being in California for the U.S. Open for primetime, but this course was so bad for the reason of the fans. To not have... 20, 30,000 people on the ground every day is is a travesty. The, this is a chance to showcase the game, to grow the game of golf. And as, as someone, like we've talked about my volunteering with the first tee, I truly believe I am on the front lines growing the game. 
And the organization that's supposed to do that the best, the United States Golf Organization, just spit in the face of every single golf fan by allowing LA Country Club, the rich, wealthiest, elitist people in Los Angeles, to just dictate the terms of our national championship. It's so fucking disgusting, Scott. And like I, I think we could say the best golfer won last week. I think we could say Wyndham Clark was the best guy out there. And I, I don't think that, you know, the score is what it is. That's what the course played to. But I can definitely say that the fans lost. And in every player out there mentioned it was not the same atmosphere. It didn't feel like a U.S. Open. And that's with everything that's going on right now in the world of golf. This was a great opportunity to come out and kill it. And um, I feel like it was about as poor of a job as they could have done. Here's two things that I, you know, that come to mind when you're, t- you know, basically walking us through this story. Number one, think about what Tin Cup said about the U.S. Open. So it's the most democratic golf tournament of them all. Yeah, they can't keep you out if you're, you know, they just, you're, if you're the best golfer, you're in it, you know. The second thing is, is that what did I say in our last episode about the U.S. Open? Do you remember? I don't know. I'm sorry. It's a Father's Day tradition. Oh, yeah. On Sunday is on Father's Day. So we went over to, you know, my dad's house. You know, my dad's going to turn 80 next year. So, I mean, I, I don't know how many Father's Days we have left. And so we watched the Astros. I know we watched them. But we had to leave because, you know, my daughter sings at, uh, at 530 Mass. So we have to leave at four o'clock, you know, you know, yeah, basically four o'clock in order for her to be able to get here and get dressed because she has to go an hour early for rehearsal. So how much U.S. Open golf did we watch on Sunday, Tim? None. Yeah, because when you're going to celebrate that day and the leaders don't tee off till five yeah. fucking thirty. Exactly. Exactly. It's over. It's gone. So we go to mass, you know, you go to mass at five 30, you get out at six 30 ish. You know, we sometimes go a little long. So, you know, by the time we come back, we're in prime time and it's like, I just, I didn't get into it. Right. And, you know, I picked Rory who almost got there. God, he comes in second so often, but yeah, I'm with you. Um, you, you have, I mean, what's the point? It's like building a baseball stadium and having only 10,000 seats. What's, what, what are we doing? It's like, you know, this is, this is America's best golf tournament. Now I'll sit there and say, when I was growing up to me, the British open was a bigger deal because I just love link style golf. I find it to be more creative you know, how guys can run, you know, run things up and do creative chip shots and things like that. I was more into that when I was a kid. But the U.S. Open is the best thing that the United States does in golf. It is our championship. If you win a U.S. Open, you've done something. There's a lot of times, a lot of years where people won PGAs and you're just kind of like, is the PGA really a major championship? Is it really? I don't know, but 
you never dissed a U.S. Open champion. Never. And that kid, you know, and I'll call him a kid because he's only got one, you know, tour victory coming into that. That, I mean, that's going to set him up for life. He, you know, no matter anything else he does, he is always going to be the U.S. Open champion, which is what I find hilarious about, you know, Tim Cup's, you know, whole immortality lights. No, this kid's immortal. He's a U.S. Open champion. He's like Lee Jansen. Nobody, you know, what is Lee Jansen doing these days? I don't know, but he won two U.S. Opens. I know that. What is Curtis Strange doing? I don't know, but he won two in a row. I know that. This kid won the U.S. Open. So... Let me uh, let me throw on my sports one uh, before we get to the politics. My sports one is going to be, uh, and I don't know if you ever listened to him here in Houston, uh, Sean Salisbury. Did you ever listen to Sean Salisbury? Uh, intern for Sean Salisbury. I'm going to call him my scumbag. And basically, here's why. So every time somebody calls in to criticize Dusty Baker, he just, he cans against them. He just disses them. You don't know what you're talking about. This guy won a World Series. Yes, the team won a World Series. But you know what? I've been watching baseball a long time. And I think I know a good manager when I see it. And I don't see one in that dugout. And I didn't see one last year in that dugout. What I saw was, certainly in the postseason, the best bullpen ever assembled in postseason baseball. I mean, the Astros broke every postseason pitching record for bullpens. I don't know if they gave up a single run. If they did, maybe it was one. Certainly one of the best pitching staffs ever assembled you could argue in baseball history, you could you know, argue you've got a roster full of veteran laden guys who, you know, know what to do and, and, and our heart, October hardened players. So can we say that Dusty Baker rode the coattails of these guys to a championship? Sure. You could argue that he didn't, you could argue that, Hey, this, you know, he was a great manager and they wouldn't have won without him. But to sit there and say that people want to criticize Dusty Baker, have absolutely zero argument, and don't know baseball, well, who the hell are you, Sean Salisbury? You were a backup quarterback in the NFL. What do you know about baseball? And, and I hate these and I hate these arguments because I've gotten them for years. Because, you know, whenever I would quote a stat and they say, well, you quote stats because you never played the games. Like, you know what? Fuck you. Because I've watched baseball just as long as anybody else has. I know baseball as good as anybody else does. You know, I've written four books about it. So I think I know a little bit about baseball. And you know what? If I want to criticize Dusty Baker, I will. No, absolutely, Scott. I I don't – I'm not going to speak for the locker room stuff that Dusty does, but strictly on managerial decisions – Oh, you mentioned your your background in baseball. You know, people on this show know I was a, a minor league baseball broadcaster. We both been around the game at its highest levels. I don't think you and I would have had any issue managing that team last year. I think that, as you mentioned, that team and that bullpen was so good. I think you and I could have managed that team to a World Series. Again, 
locker room, keeping everybody happy, that, you know, managing egos aside, in-game decisions, I don't, I mean, Dusty Baker did what, like, the numbers said it did. He didn't do anything spectacular along the way. In fact, the one spectacular decision he made was spectacularly dumb two years ago when he pitches Lance McCullers a day early, causing Lance to screw up his routine, and we've been dealing with the fallout for that for two years now based on that one decision that Dusty Baker made, which was to move up a Lance McCullers start in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, that's, yep. I mean, the whole thing is, and and if somebody wants to come out and and argue that he was a re- he's a really good manager and he deserves credit. Hey, make that argument. I have no problem with it. What I have a problem with is calling people an idiot based on an opinion that there's a lot of people I know have. And the guys at 610, they've been harping on it for over a month. So they're on my side on this thing. But yeah, and again, you made the point. What the fuck does Sean Salisbury know about baseball that's any different? And in fact, I'd like to think you and I probably know more about baseball than Sean Salisbury. It just so happens that, you know, he started at ESPN before he fell from grace for some not poor some poor life decisions he made and ended up at Yahoo Sports Radio and eventually and he even was a national host of Yahoo Sports Radio when I was there, and now he's just a local Houston guy. So this is a guy who's had a fucking fall from grace, was a quarterback, and we're just supposed to believe that like he he knows Astros baseball better than anybody. And he's he's not. He's a nobody. Sean Salisbury is a nobody. He's not even on he's on like a third rate radio station in Houston. He's not on seven ninety or six ten. And if you're if you're one of those, I don't really give a shit. Like oh, I'm not a Granado fan. He Huh? He is on oh, he's 7, on 790 now? Okay. 97.5, yeah. Yeah, he was on uh, 1560 for the longest time. And when you're like, at that point, you get no respect. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I got I don't have a lot of respect for a guy like Sean Salisbury. I really don't because you don't know what you're talking about. He's, you really don't. He's basically Dan Orvalosky who's made bad life decisions. And Pretty I saw, much, and I saw a tweet for him today, and he may be moving on because I saw him you know, like he's starting some kind of app or something. Maybe uh, I don't know, but anyway, like that. He to me, he's like like John Granado. Like I never like Granado, and the only reason Granado still has run is because he owns part of the fucking station that he's on. Like he owns part of it, and when David Gow came in and bought it, he got like part of the agreement was like, yeah, I get to keep having my job. So I think in any other word, Granado is. is out of Houston Sports Radio years ago. Well, that and he uh, he tends to work with Lance pretty well. He's one of those guys that I think without Lance, he wouldn't be anything. Uh, Lance is okay. like, But I, Lance is another guy like, you want to talk about NFL draft? I'm all for it. Don't really care what you say about the other sports. Like that's a, and that's, that's the problem we have in Houston is like, we've got all these former football guys like like Seth Payne. Like, hey, you want to talk Texans? Great. When you talk Astros, you're just a fan like everybody else. They you know, there's they love to hire former Texans. Give fucking Michael Bourne a job. Why is Michael Bourne not on a Houston radio station somewhere talking Astros baseball? Because the Astros are the best team in town. Why do we not ever hire former Astros players for talk show radio? They have no problem hiring random fucking Texans players. All the time. Well, that's what kills go, me now. Go get Michael Bourne. What kills me now is he had Clint Sterner. 
who I, I, I had a running gunning battle with him on, on Twitter. Yeah. You know, and, and it was, it was fairly civilized, but it got back to the point of I was, I'm a professional, former professional athlete, sort of. Um, and so therefore I know more than you. It's like, we're talking about the Astros, dude. You played in the, well, you played in the NFL. If we put air quotes around that, you, you know, you're like a third stringer, you know? So, okay. You know, so you, I'm supposed to sit there and say, you know more about the Astros than me. Okay. I guess. And, and I think that's the problem is so Michael, Michael Bourne, they don't want Astros talk. 610 doesn't want Astros talk. They're going to talk Texans 12 months out of the year. That's, that's the problem. And that's what's stupid to be Scott is the Astros are the best team in town. They have a six-month fucking season, so you could talk Astros every day for six months if you had good a good baseball guy on the air. When's the last time? I mean, I love Matt Thomas. I love Matt Thomas, and he'll talk Astros with you. But again, he's no different than you and I. He's a guy who watches a lot of baseball, who knows his shit. Why do we – it's – other towns have a variety of sports. You know, you listen to – some of the former NBA players now that have fantastic podcasts out there. Why? Why? Why are no doors opening for these guys? Why is Why is no one offering JJ Redick his own radio show? Why is no one going? Why did these guys all have to go on their own with podcasts? But know. former NFL players constantly get picked up in the cities where they used to live, and they're and they're shock jocks in the radio for the rest of their career. Doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense, and especially in a city like Houston that's as baseball hungry as they are. All right, so I'm going to throw it back to you. Who back is to me. Second scumbag. I don't know who to label as a scumbag on this one, Scott. So we'll just call it the Texas legislature on this one. But they approved a new rule, a new law, a House Bill 2127, that will officially ban mandated water breaks for outdoor workers in the state of Texas. It was fucking 100 degrees yesterday. It's going to be 100 degrees many more times throughout this summer. Since 2011, there's been a minimum of 42 workers who have died outside from heat exposure. We're one of the hottest states in the country. And to do this, to jeopardize the life of every construction worker so that way these companies can avoid fines and they can do whatever the fuck they want. What are we doing, Scott? Like, this is this is post-apocalyptic, disgusting bullshit here. Like, you, there's no way in at all that you can frame this to me that you were doing this with your citizens' best interests at heart. No way. Absolutely no way. This is going back to junior high football. Which I, I I don't know if you played football in, in junior high. I did. I the first my first practice, I puked everywhere because I didn't understand how to hydrate throughout the day and and not just drink all your your water at practice. Well, what the worst thing was is that you know there were water breaks for us where they'd bring out a hose and they'd cut those little like slivers in the, the hole the holes in it and everyone just sticks their mouth yeah, over the yeah, hole. Exactly, that was our water. They, break. Hey, they upgraded at Clear Lake Intermediate when I was there. They they had a plastic PVC thing they would plug the hose into that it would still shoot out all the holes. Well, you got to remember, well, I was playing back in the days of leather helmets, so you know, you got to you know you got to account for that. But no, and and here's what you know to add on a little addendum to your story there about the uh, Texas legislature. Do you realize that? 
Greg Abbott vetoed 47 bills from the Texas legislature. He's throwing a little personal temper tantrum over his uh, – he's trying to get the lowered home tax, property tax value going in. But I really feel like it's a Trojan horse so he can still get vouchers because if you take away the funding for public schools and property taxes, where is that going to come from? Vouchers, bitches. Well, but, you know, what's funny is, is it which party controls the legislature again? Yep. Republicans. They've had it for 27 fucking years. And I, I think if somebody were to come back with the uh, the bill you're describing, I think what they would sit there and say is, number one, I think these guys are getting water breaks. I, I think, you know, most of these companies are giving these guys water breaks. And federal law, I think, mandates that you get a certain number of breaks, you know, within, you know, a 40-hour week. Um, I've never actually been a haven't been an hourly worker in a while but i seem to remember that you got breaks like every two hours and then like in the four hour mark was lunch and then you know i could tell you right now my time as a server i got i have never once had a break in my life i i, I never got one but period uh, and that was just how it was you didn't get a break it was busy and so i don't know and so I think people would argue that most of these guys would be getting breaks. I don't, I don't think, you know, that we're going to see a bunch of guys dying of heat exhaustion. It's just kind of the, it's just kind of the signal. It's a signal, you know, what you're saying, basically it's symbolic. You know, it's like, we're not going to pay these guys a living wage and we're not going to mandate that you're healthy. Yes. Cause theoretically, uh, Scott, you know, in the past, if you didn't do that, right, if you were a company that was found to be evil and not letting people take those breaks, there was a punishment, right? That that was there. Now there's nothing. Like there's no – who you can't call the, the can't call the local people and be like, hey, this company's not letting us do that. Well, you, you can call the National Labor Board, but good luck with that, right? Like yeah. at the end of the day, if you want immediate action, you call your local government and they're like, hey, these people have us out here working eight-hour days in 100-degree heat. We're not getting any water breaks. Well, now they just go tough shit and hang shit. up the phone. So, and you're right. It's a symbol. It is. But, and here's what I don't understand. People still vote for this guy. People still vote for these people. How, as a, as a representative of the Texas legislator who voted yes on this bill, how can we sit down at the next town hall meeting that you have with your, with your constituents? How the fuck are you going to sell that to me as a positive? In what way can you justify your vote as I care about you, my voters? Because you don't. You care about the construction companies that are going to give you political donations on your next go-round because you help them out. And that's all it is. It was a big, giant, fuck you, middle finger. I'm taking the money from all of our representatives. Oh, those are, but those are people too. They're just they're rich people that own companies <laughs> okay I'm, I'm a i'm a fuck the rich guy we've been over it like i'm a, i'm honestly very okay that a billionaire imploded in a submarine near titanic this week I, i'm cool with that i wish more billionaires would take stupid sub trips and implode because the world will be a better place without them well you know we we ran into this with ann you know our daughter she she actually made a sweatshirt that said eat the rich Love Which, it. Well, the problem that we, we tried to point out to her is like, you realize, honey, that in certain circles, we're rich. 
Not not yeah. at the issue that we have problems. No, no, with. no, 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 no. I, I, yeah, but I'm just saying some people could look at you and go like, um, yeah, <laughs> and so you know she doesn't wear that anymore. But um, so I'm gonna go a little bit bigger here with my last comeback, and we're gonna go with the United States Congress, more specifically the House of Representatives, because the House of Representatives is where impeachment occurs okay any any time you're going to impeach any kind of public official anybody who's an elected official or appointed like the supreme court uh that that's going to be in the house of representatives now are they impeaching clarence thomas no sorry sorry to burst your bubble and and so here's what i'm going to ask tim did you ever watch the dukes of hazard Movie, yes. TV show, no. Okay, so on the TV show, the it was like you know, it was almost like watching the Roadrunner, you know, trying to catch you know Wiley Coyote trying to catch the Roadrunner, is that Boss Hog and Ross P. Coltrane uh, were always trying to catch the Duke boys, and so Boss Hog at one point sit there said, "I'm going to arrest the Duke boys," and they said, "For what?" And he's like, "I don't know. I'll figure it out later." That's where your U.S. House of Representatives is at, folks. They want to impeach Joe Biden. Why do they want to impeach Joe Biden? Because a grand jury in Florida voted to charge Donald Trump with over 30 felonies. Now, remember what I just said, a grand jury. So this is not Democrats. This is not Joe Biden. This is not the Justice Department. This is not the Attorney General. This is a special prosecutor appointed by the Attorney General who presented the case to average ordinary citizens on a grand jury who they voted to charge the ex-president. So what are we going to do? We're going to impeach Joe Biden. Now, for those of y'all who maybe fell asleep in civics class or government class when you were in high school, this is, what, this is where this boils down to. An impeachment is an indictment. You are indicting a public official. The House indicts, the Senate convicts. So what are we indicting Joe Biden on? They don't know. They'll figure it out later. So basically they're like boss hog from the 1970s and 80s. I'm just going to arrest them Duke boys and I'll figure out what to do later. It's not what America's jurisprudence was based on. It's not what government's based on. You have uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, who we've discussed many times on this show. One's calling the other one a little bitch. Which one it was, I don't care because it doesn't matter. They don't have any evidence. They keep saying we have whistleblowers. What happened to these whistleblowers? We can't find them. Well, here's this evidence. Can you prove that it's actually evidence? No, we can't. We actually can't demonstrate anything. But we're still mad as hell and we want to impeach them. And this is where I brought up this morning what happened with our neighbors. That's what government is for, folks. Government is for providing basic services to its citizens. It's for, provide, it's for providing protection from enemies, foreign, domestic. It's protect our rights. 
It's to protect us, you know, as consumers. It's to protect us, you know, when we're working. It's to protect, you know, even business owners who need protection. All of these things is what government is for. Because we all agree that everybody should be free up until the point of my nose. And as soon as you reach my nose, your freedom's in, pal. Mine begin. That's what government is for. We can have debates over how we do this. We can have debates over how effectively we spend the money and how whether or not there are some services that are necessary or not. We can have all those debates. But what we can't do is we can't take somebody who was duly elected and sit there and say, I don't like you or we think you've done a bad job. You're impeached. That's not how this works. What happens is, is that they have to commit a crime. When they commit a crime, then you can impeach them. Then you can go to the Senate. The Senate can look at the evidence and say, yep, you're kicked out of office, or no, we don't sustain the charge. That's how this works, folks. Absolutely right, Scott. You, you hit the nail on the head, and I couldn't have said it better myself. I want to add one minor scumbag, a sports one. Uh, today, someone showed up to the pre-qualifier for the Monday qualifier for the Rocket Mortgage tournament on the PGA Tour. This person shot 113 at a qualifier for a Monday queue for a PGA Tour event. I'm not even going to say he's the scumbag for showing up. The fact that they let this guy finish the fucking back nine, he shot 58 at the front. Pull your ass off the fucking course after nine holes. And it reminds me, there was a gentleman, uh, there's a book about him, called, it's, a movie came out called Phantom of the Open. There's a guy who kept trying to qualify for the Open Championship many, many times. And he'd lie about his handicap. He'd say he was a pro. He'd show up and he'd shoot like 120 or 150. And, and his name was like Maurice Feathercroft. And this guy had never even seen a golf course before he had tried out for the Open Championship. He would go to an open field with a ball and then his irons and whack it around and be like, I'm ready. This is my year. I'm going to qualify this year. And he legitimately thought he would make it. And every year, he got nowhere close. And he hardly ever finished 18 holes before they kicked this guy off the course. But somehow, they let this guy finish his round. Could you imagine you're trying to qualify for a PJ Tour event You've played a few tour events before. You try to get out there for this one, and the guy who's paired with you is is, is shooting fifty eight on the front nine. Now, now like Tim, what now, the fuck? Now Tim, now Tim, theoretically he could have gotten holes in one and every one of the back nine holes and shot a sixty seven. Could have, yeah. but he didn't because no, no. he shot a fifty five on the back okay. for a one thirteen. Okay, I've got uh, I've got another funny story I was gonna say, but uh, there used to be a tournament, and I don't know if it still exists. Uh, called the worst avid golfer in the world. And so there, there are actually rules to this thing. Like you have to play, like, I don't know if, if I could qualify for it. Cause I don't know if I play enough. So the guy who won one year, this is back in the eighties. I remember his name was Angelo Spagnola. He went out there and fired a 220. a two twenty. And so here's how it happened. He gets down to the fact where he's brought like 30 or 40 balls. He's down to one ball. 
and he's on a par three, and so he just puts this thing around the lake and has like a 65 on this par three. <laughs> and so they gave this guy a couple of commercials. And so this is, you know, this is pre-Happy Gilmore. I mean, this is back in the 1980s. And so the first commercial, yeah, I have a three-step method to driving. So he takes three steps and swings at it. Then he has this, you know, other one where he's on the cart path and the ball's on the cart path. And he says, you know, most people, they drop it off the cart path and they take a penalty. I use it as an advantage. And he pulls out a putter and he just puts it down the cart path. <laughs> <laughs> you're just like what the hell you know could now that that's a guy that you can imagine playing with i don't in 1986 angelo spagnola made a 66 on the 17th at tpc sawgrass yeah putting it around the damn thing yeah that, that, it, okay so i don't know if this is dumb tweet i don't know if this is this is profiles and idiocy okay let me set the tail here this happened in uh, either North South Carolina. Doesn't really matter, right? So, twenty-four-year-old woman turns up pregnant, and her husband is fifty-three, and she says that her husband is sterile. So she said that what she thinks happened was that she was on a recent camping trip with some friends. And so she thinks Sasquatch did it. That's right. She was impregnated by Bigfoot. Now, here's the kicker. Husband buys it. He trusts her. He says, I don't think she'd lie about this. And if I ever run into Sasquatch, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Now, here's, the, here's my question, right? If Bigfoot were really to exist, wouldn't there logically be more than one Bigfoot? Are you with me here, Tim? Yeah, the, I mean, theoretically, it would be a an unknown species that we hadn't found, right? Like a advanced form of ape that is living in the mountains that we don't know is there, but we... I think that's what you're getting at, right? Right, so what happens if Hubby sees Sasquatch... But it's the wrong one. It starts. Mm, this is a Bigfoot-related hate crime. Now we're now we are. You specifically went against that race of Sasquatches because you and have a, a problem. And he's sitting there giving a Sasquatch a piece of his mind. He says, "No, no, 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 that wasn't me. That was my cousin Larry. It wasn't me." <laughs> and it's like this is the this is magical thinking at its height, right? Because yeah. you and I know. There are two possibilities here. And I want to go with both of them are equally likely, right? Either A, husband is not really sterile. Maybe doctor thought he was sterile. We're going to keep this in the family first. But the second one is obviously like, uh, I think she met up with somebody on the camping yeah. trip her sleeping bag was not alone my friend and it was not a sasquatch maybe it's somebody whose nickname is bigfoot you know maybe he's a big guy uh, you know a hairy guy that could be but uh, yeah so are there any stories of idiocy that you know, jump out to you this week i mean you sent me some good ones scott um our senator 
State, uh, United States Senator Josh Hawley saying, today's a good day to remember Christianity is the faith and America is the place slavery came to die uh, and celebrating Juneteenth. Uh, pretty, pretty stupid. And then you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene um, literally putting a video out that says, this is a communist country. We've been taken over. We're not a free country anymore. Uh, I, I mean, two of your usual idiots. The, uh, the, the idea that they think that this is where slavery came to die, like I, slavery, chattel slavery ended in every other fucking civilized country, like 50 to 60 years before we got it done in the United States. It was like England outlawed it in the 1790s. Spain was done with it. France was done with it. But you know who kept fucking chugging along till 1865 was the United fucking States of America. So, I, I mean, you could say it was the Confederate States. Either way, this continent kept it rolling 60 to 70 years longer than, you know, the people we broke away from. You could honestly, if we stayed British, slavery would have ended sooner in America than it did for us breaking off on our own. And in fact, some would say slavery might have even been a reason why we wanted to go our own separate ways based on some of our beliefs that we needed to keep hold of this. Slavery is the reason that Texas fucking exists and why they had to break away from Mexico because Mexico didn't want the the people who moved to Texas to have slaves. So you know what they did? They said, fuck you, Mexico. We're going to have our own country. We want slaves. So you cannot sit here and act like America is amazing because we ended slavery. We were the last ones to do it. So I, I sent you one. Uh, Charlie Kirk. Oh, everybody's God. I hate favorite, that guy. Everybody's favorite. So, and this is my- His eyes are too close together. It's fucking weird looking. Um, yeah, I had a friend on Facebook who suggested fetal alcohol sy- syndrome. Uh, Charlie Kirk. I, I'm not going to go there. I'm not. I'm, 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 you know. Just saying what some people said. People, it's not unreasonable. People, people are saying. People are saying. The people are talking. <laughs> people are talking about it. Okay, so Charlie Kirk, he comes up with this tweet. I'm not going to read it word for word, but basically he said, that, "Oh, this Juneteenth is CRT business to compete with the Fourth of July." Now, before I address, you know how much how racist and and you know, let's look at how stupid this is. How many people are you? How many people do you know that are complaining that we have too many holidays? People who own businesses who have to pay us paid holidays. We have too many holidays because you know I remember a Simpsons episode where Homer complains about the fact that they separated Washington and Jefferson's birthday, you know, to form President's Day. We should have, or was it Abraham Lincoln in, in Washington? Abraham Lincoln. We should have it's both, Lincoln in Washington. We should have Abraham Lincoln and Washington's birthday separate. It, it's just a travesty that they put it all on one holiday. And so, and I think there are people who probably think that way. There are people who would want to take Richard Nixon's birthday off if somebody would make it a national holiday. There are people who would want to take Arbor Day off if they would make it a national holiday. So there's there's not much I wouldn't take off for. Like literally, yeah. I, if you told me like, hey, this is a paid holiday, fuck yeah, this is cool. <laughs> like no kidding. So you know, not only is he, you know just pandering, you know, to all of these people who are racist, but 
He's only apparently only pandering to rich racists because people who are poor racists are like, yeah, no, I'll take the holiday. I'm not, I don't care about Juneteenth, but you know. And, and not to mention Scott, like let's be real. The 4th of July was not that big of a holiday until like the 1950s. It really wasn't celebrated in America the way it is now until you got a collection of, of pastors and, and people who got together that want to make it a big holiday. It is it is a Christian holiday. It really is um, because a lot of United States Christian pastors got together and made it a big deal. But before like the 1950s, it was not celebrated the way that it is now. Well, think about this. So um, I don't know how much of your world history you remember. What does Cinco de Mayo signify? That's when Mexico had their independence from Spain. No. What is it then? They took over a fort. Mm. You're, the, the the date that you're you're calling that is in September. I can't remember. I can't remember the exact date in September. I want to say the fifteenth or sixteenth, but the sixteenth is my dad's birthday, so maybe that's what I'm remembering. But it may be the twenty fourth. Now that I'm thinking about it, but no. So when do we sell? Celebrate all this? You know, when everybody goes out and has a margarita. Cinco de Mayo Cinco de for some reason. Well, you know, you know, what's so funny is is that, okay, so you remember where the Coliseum is, right? In Rome? No, the Coliseum on El Camino. Oh, yeah, yeah. So next door to it used to be a Mexican food restaurant. And it's actually been a few different things. Well, they they ran a Mexican food restaurant there for a while that didn't have their liquor license. So think about this. They can't sell they can't sell any liquor. So no margaritas. We went out to eat there. We get in and out. No problem. It's Mexican food. Should be Cinco de Mayo. But why are there nobody why is there nobody there? Damn. Cause it's an Italian restaurant on Cinco de Mayo? No, 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 not the Coliseum. There's a Mexican food restaurant next to Oh, it, gotcha. But they didn't have a liquor license. So the whole thing is you couldn't get a margarita. So gotcha. I can get I can get Mexican food, but nobody's coming because I got to have that margarita. So really, what are we celebrating? Are we celebrating the invention of the margarita? What, what what you know? Really, what are we doing? Did you ever watch Arrested Development? Oh yes, oh yes. They they make fun of that perfectly, right? Where they do the Cinco de Cuatro celebration, which is literally just like. Exactly what you're talking about, which is like it's an American day where we want to celebrate like margaritas. And it's the oh, it was always like the day before Cinco de Mayo where like Americans would just act like idiots and get drunk on margaritas. Like that's essentially what Cinco de Mayo has become. And it's, uh, yeah. Fun fact though, three presidents have died on 4th of July, Scott. Yep, I know two of them. Because we always heard same that. time, yeah, same day. Yeah, we've always heard that story, right? Everybody the third that? one, James Monroe, okay. was the third one. Okay, that must another be- another fun Fourth of July death fact: President Zach Taylor died in 1850 after eating spoiled fruit at a Fourth of July celebration. Oh, that that's not that's no good. That's no good. All Classic. Right. Yes. All right. So I think we've come to the end of this one. So by hopefully by the time the next time you hear from us, Tim will have a new member of the family. And I will be returning from a much-deserved vacation. We look forward to it. And uh, we're not sure how long this break will be, but 
definitely be back probably within a couple weeks. So look forward to coming back at you a lot more tired than I am right now, um, but hopefully more inspired than I am right now as well with, with the wife having a hospital stay coming. Who knows? We may just be doing a Healthcare in America episode coming up when we come back. That sounds like a plan. Awesome. Well, hey, we appreciate everybody who joined us, who made us part of your week, uh, and who enjoyed this kind of throwback episode uh, where we had a little bit of both the uh, cults of sports and baseball. I'm sorry, sports and politics. But, hey, we will see everybody next time. We appreciate you joining us here and making us a part of your week on the Snap Hook. Thank you for tuning in to the Snap Hook and making Scott and I a part of your week. Wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snap Hook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snap Hook. Thank you.